0: if you would open up your Bibles to the book of Mark this morning. And I have to say, I I really am so excited to be opening up a, a gospel and beginning to work through expositional Bible teaching once again. I'm grateful for all the, uh, the topical sermons that we were able to go through over the last couple of months. I think they were good and necessary, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how God is going to continue to use that material within our lives. But after some time away from weekly exposition, I'm... I'm just so excited to begin to dive in chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and study a book of the Bible again together with you, especially as we're about to dive into this wonderful gospel of Mark. We're going to get to see Jesus, and we're going to get to see Him on a weekly basis as we move through this wonderful book together, and I cannot think of a better way to spend our Sunday mornings together than by studying Jesus Christ, and gazing upon our Lord through the study of His Word. This sermon today is really an introductory sermon in many ways, as, uh, you know, this is kind of a one-part lecture, one-part sermon, a kind of sermon as we're approaching this text, trying to gain some background information, understanding of why this book was written, etc. But it's good for us to move through this. It's good for us to get a good grasp of the background of the book, because that helps us understand why it is that Mark has written what he has written in the way he has written it. You know, as we gaze back into church history, there are several fascinating details about the gospel of Mark that, that I came across that fascinated me. One is that the, the gospel of Mark, especially early on in the history of the church, was a bit of a neglected gospel. Though it was accurately regarded as Scripture, the other longer Gospels received much more attention than the Gospel of Mark did. I I read this week that, uh, that there was no commentary written on the Gospel of Mark for the first 600 or 650 or so years of the church. No commentaries. There were commentaries on Matthew, on Luke, and on John, but no commentaries on the Gospel of Mark. And then between the years eighty six fifty and 1000, there were 13 major commentaries written on the Gospel of Matthew, but only four on the Gospel of Mark. Now over the years, this neglect has been corrected, and there's been the publication of many great commentaries on the book of Mark, and been a lot, there's been a lot more attention that has been given it to Mark in more recent years as well. And I am greatly looking forward to moving through this book together with us. So let's just begin with a few just backgrounds, some introductory things. The author, of course, is Mark. Is it going to move for me? Yeah, there we have. The author is this individual. His name is John Mark. Of course, as we turn there, we see the heading of the book, The Gospel According to Mark. Well, officially, this book is anonymous. Like, Mark didn't write his name. Hey, this is is my book. I wrote this. From the pen of John Mark flows this gospel. Mark didn't write that. But we have the testimony very early on in church history that it was John Mark who wrote this. Well, who is John Mark? Let's just just uh, uh, some brief introductory information about who this individual is. We have information in Scripture about who John Mark is. The only man in Scripture with the name of Mark is called John Mark in the Book of Acts. He was the cousin of Barnabas, and he and he was a man who helped. uh, Barnabas was the man who helped establish Paul in his ministry. Well, the church in Jerusalem met in John Mark's mother's house. So, as Paul was getting established in his ministry, they, he would have spent significant time in John Mark's mother's house and likely significant time around John Mark as well. And when Paul and Barnabas came to Jerusalem, they were initially in Antioch. They, they came to Jerusalem to deliver supplies because there was a famine in the land, and so they were bringing supplies to aid in the famine. Well, there it was that they picked up Mark to travel with them, partially, probably because Barnabas recruited Mark for the journey. However, for reasons not stated in the text, Mark left the group and returned home in the middle of that missionary journey. Now again, we're not told why that was in the text, but apparently this was a choice that was very offensive to the Apostle Paul. Later, Paul and Barnabas are preparing to go on another missionary journey, and Barnabas wants to take Mark along with him again, but Paul says, no way, Jose, (laughs) this ain't happening. He deserted us once, not going through that again. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not going to allow that to happen. And so Paul and Barnabas, they have a disagreement about this. And it's so severe, it says that they ended up parting ways. Barnabas takes Mark and goes in one direction. Paul takes Silas and goes the opposite way. And just from that, if that's all the information we had about this character, it would be a kind of a depressing end in the story of the life of Mark, wouldn't it? It seems like he had his shots, but he blew it. And now Paul believes that he is disqualified from ministry and wants no part of his help again. That would be a rather depressing end. And furthermore, we might wonder, well, how is it that Mark, after that story, how could it be that he ended up writing Scripture? Scripture? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that God does not give up on us, even though we do blow it and we make our mistakes, we sin in different ways, but God continues to work within our hearts, doesn't He? And He continues to shape us, He continues to mold us, and He continues to accomplish His purposes within us. And such as it is in the life of Mark. Writing years after these events, Paul wrote in Philemon chapter 1, verse 24, that that Mark was one of his co-workers in the ministry. Later in Colossians chapter 4 verse 10, Paul indicates that Mark was with him when he wrote Colossians, and he instructed the church to welcome Mark if Mark were to come to them. And so now here's Paul recommending Mark to a church. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.13 that Mark was with him, and he even calls him his son in the faith, which could indicate that Peter either led Mark to faith in Christ, or maybe he discipled him, or perhaps both. And finally, and perhaps what may be the most significant passage about Mark, Paul wrote in his last epistle to Timothy, this is 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11, he says, Come to me and bring Mark with me. Why? Paul says this, for he is useful to me in ministry. He is useful to me for ministry. Mark was once considered a failure by Paul, such that Paul did not want Mark around in any way. No, you're not coming with me. You can take him Barnabas, but I'll go a separate way from Mark. But God kept working in Mark's life, and there was a restoration that was of such a magnitude that Paul identified Mark not only as being a co-worker in the ministry, but recommending him to other churches and to asking Timothy to bring him with him, saying, this man is useful to me again. It's an incredible testimony of God's grace and powerful working within an individual's life. There are other things that we can learn about Mark from early church history uh, testimony. Mark was closely associated with the Apostle Peter. Of course, we have that testimony from Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter calls him his son in the faith. But there was a man, his name was Papias, he was an early church pastor, and he said that the Apostle John talked about how Peter instructed Mark, and how Mark collected Peter's writings, and that's how we ended up with the gospel of Mark. Mark collected Peter's teachings and wrote them down in order to compose this book. And that's how we have the gospel according to Mark. And that connection between Mark and Peter, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense when we consider some of the content of the gospel of Mark. We have the disciples, and Peter in particular. As we look into this book, we're going to see they're not exactly portrayed in the most flattering of lights. These are individuals, these these characters, they they act as literary foils contrasting with the faithful servant Jesus Christ. And the disciples and Peter, though they are constantly confused, they, they constantly ask strange questions and are constantly having to be corrected by Jesus Christ, they are also constantly given second chances. And that is a bit of a minor theme within the book. And that's not surprising when we find that as a minor theme when we consider the life history of Mark, but also Peter, who denied his Lord and yet was used powerfully by God in the life of the church. So it is written by this character, John Mark. Well, when was it written? There's a lot of debate surrounding the exact timing of the writing of the book of Mark. But it appears that Mark was written during a time of great difficulty. And that the book stands as a challenge to believers regarding how they will respond when those difficulties come. It's also possible that the death of Peter may have prompted Mark to write the gospel to preserve Peter's teachings about the Christ... And Peter is believed to have died in the mid-60s A.D., which puts the date of the writing of the Gospel of Mark somewhere in the late 60s A.D. And this would have been the time of when Emperor Nero was the emperor of Rome. And of course, we know a little bit about Nero, don't we? He was one of the most wicked emperors that Rome ever had. He severely persecuted Christians, burned them alive. He blamed Christians for... Of the destruction of Rome when Rome burned it down. And so we see that this would have been t- a time of significant distress within the life of Christians. Which also is significant for us as we consider the setting of where Mark wrote, where, where was he when he wrote? And we see that he wrote from, more than likely, he wrote from the city of Rome. If we have the date of writing correct, this location is very significant as we just consider. Hey, Mark wrote really at the epicenter of persecution of believers. At at a time when they would have been most persecuted and most chased around, most hunted, that is when Mark wrote his gospel. Almost every scholar who looks at the book of Mark identifies identifies Mark chapter 10 verse 45 as the key verse for the book. Jesus says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This verse is going to serve for us as the key verse for our book, for our study, as we consider that Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant, and He came to serve, and He came to give His life. And that's reflected in the characteristics of the book. Let's consider just a few characteristics of the book of Mark. It is the shortest and punchiest of all the Gospels, And it it is a very, what is considered to be an abrupt book. It is short, punchy, and abrupt. Mark moves very quickly through the, the stories of the book. The word immediately is, is used over and over again, and immediately this happened, and immediately that happened. This occurred, Jesus says this, and immediately these events took place. It's very, it's very punchy in that way. It, it moves from event to event, from episode to episode very quickly, and it begins abruptly. We don't have a birth narrative. We don't have uh, much by way of setting up the ministry of Jesus. It's just, bam, here he is. He's on the scene proclaiming the gospel, and it's right into his ministry, And as it moves through, it ends abruptly as well. Mark wastes no time moving from episode to episode within the narrative. But even so, even though it moves about very quickly, Mark still uses the traditional elements of a well-constructed story. There's an opening setting. The story progresses along with rising action. We find conflict and problems and tension. And this action rises to a climax when the, when the conflict comes to a head. And then there is a falling action where the story begins to wind down before coming to a conclusion and resolution at the end. So even though it is short and punchy and abrupt, it is still a masterfully told story. Mark also presents Jesus Christ as the suffering servant. That's what we see in that key verse, Mark 10:45. He did not come to be served but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. As we move through this book, we will find the ever-overflowing compassion of Jesus Christ. Mark emphasizes the miracles of Christ and his actions and how he compassionately cared for the crowds, the multitudes. Further demonstrating the servant character of our Lord. As we move through the narrative, about, about halfway through, there's going to be a decided shift where Jesus begins to make known about now how only is it now how only is he not just a servant, but he is going to be the suffering servant, how he must suffer and die. And he's going to have to explain that to his disciples several times. No, this is what's coming for me. As he moves closer and closer to Jerusalem. Within this book, we also find an emphasis upon discipleship. There's an emphasis upon the concepts of discipleship. Can you uh, fix that, Liz, uh, to get it to discipleship? Jesus focuses on and, and seeks to de- teaching his disciples what it means to follow Jesus. There are certain expectations of Jesus and of his followers. Those who follow after Jesus Christ, he expects them to live certain ways. But yet there's also an understanding within the book that those who follow him will follow imperfectly. Of all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark seems to have really the lowest view of the disciples in many ways. Uh, We mentioned this a little bit already, but they're constantly presented as individuals who are confused. They're misunderstanding Jesus' words and actions, and Christ is constantly correcting them and teaching them, saying, no, no, you misunderstand. It's not like that. It's actually like this. This is the way it must be. This is why things are the way that they are. But through it all, Christ is patient with them. He teaches them. He gives them second chances. And so we find that discipleship is a process. We learn how to follow Jesus Christ. It's a progressive thing within our lives. Following Jesus requires commitment on our part. But we recognize that we are all in process together as we learn How to follow Jesus more and more each day. The gospel can be outlined in the following manner we have the introduction of the Messiah in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. He's going to be proclaimed as this is the one who is fulfilling prophecy. There's going to be John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord, and he's going to declare this is the Son of God. There's going to be a proclamation from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Introducing the Messiah, Jesus Christ. From there, Jesus is going to be spending the majority of his time in Galilee, establishing his authority, that he is the Messiah. And He has authority over unclean spirits. He has authority to teach. He has authority even to forgive sins. Something that only God can do. And so He'll be establishing Himself as one with authority as the Christ. And the majority of that will be spent in the region of Galilee. He'll be showing His disciples what it looks like to be His follower and to be fishers of men, As mentioned, there's a decided shift in chapter 8 where the focus begins to change a little bit. No longer is Jesus primarily spending His time in Galilee, but He begins His pathway towards Jerusalem. And He begins to teach His disciples about the suffering of the Messiah. And so in chapters 8, verses 22 on through chap- the, the end of chapter 15, we see the suffering of the Messiah, that the, su- that the Messiah must suffer and die. And even through the midst of that, he also is teaching his disciples what it means to be a disciple even through suffering. What does it mean to follow Jesus even when we are suffering? He begins to trace that out and and seek to bring his disciples along in explaining that. The latter portion of this section, of course, contains the crucifixion of Christ upon the cross, but we find that Jesus Christ does not stay dead. Amen? Jesus Christ rises again from the dead. We find the triumph of the Messiah. He triumphs over sin and over death. And then we find an implicit challenge within the conclusion of the book. This book is written at a time of great suffering when believers are being heavily persecuted for their faith. This was written to suffering believers. It demonstrates how Christ Himself suffered but was ultimately triumphant. And the challenge, the challenge with the closing of the book is this: How will you respond to the message of Jesus Christ? What will you do with this suffering Messiah? What will you do with the calls to discipleship and to follow after Him? Will you take up that call? Will you follow Jesus even if it costs you your life? Or will you run away and forsake Him in fear? Well, this gives us much of the background information that we will need to bear in mind as we begin to move forward through the study of this book together. I do want us to begin studying the passage itself this morning. So we are going to be in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and that's as far as we're going to go today. But this, the chapter 1, verse 1, in many ways serves as the introduction to the book. As Mark is writing, he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the beginning. Mark starts at the beginning. This is, but this is not just like a, oh, once upon a time, like a fairy tale, right? I, no, this, there's something more here. This, there's something more significant. This is the beginning of the greatest story ever told. Right? This is the beginning of the message of Jesus Christ, the beginning of God become flesh, the beginning of how everything that we can hope for in this world... Only come through the person of Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of the accurate historical account of the greatest man who ever lived. A man who was not just a man, but the Christ, the Son of God. He says it's the beginning, but but it's the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that word gospel, we use that word all over the place today, right? We we've, we've got even genres of music. Oh, there's gospel music, right? We we talk about oh we the gospel. Oh, we want to be gospel-centered Christians. Oh, gospel this, gospel that. And we use it all over the place. And we can kind of be a little bit desensitized to the significance and the meaning of that word. Of course, you've all I'm sure are all aware of what the original meaning of the word gospel is. Good news. That's what the word means in its essence. It is good news. But as familiar as we are with the word gospel, that word was not used in the same sense back in the, the, the times of Christ as then as it was. As, I'm jumbling my words a little bit there. The word was not used in the same sense in those days as it is used today. There's a a slightly different nuance to how it was used. When the term was used in the first century, it was often used in Roman culture to speak of major events in the life of the Roman emperor and his family. So there would be proclamations that would be made. This is the good news of the birth of the heir to the throne. The, The heir to Caesar. These announcements would be called the gospel about the birth of so-and-so, the good news of the emperor, the good news of the heir on the throne. So when Christians began to take that word and use it to talk of Jesus Christ, that would have been a bit jarring to the Gentile audience of that day. It would have been a little bit jarring to, the especially as we consider Mark writing in Rome, to Roman believers, to people at the epicenter of where, the the capital city of the Roman Empire. Here, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus Christ. It's not about some emperor, some human leader. This isn't about Nero. No. This is about something even more significant. It's about Jesus Christ. The good news is not just about some earthly ruler who have an overly inflated view of himself. The good news is about the creator of all things. The Roman rulers, sure, they had power over their domain. But Jesus is going to demonstrate that he has authority over all things. He has power over all. He is the one with the real authority. In some ways, Mark seems to be interested in kind of jarring his readers. That's kind of what, an aspect of how he goes around. Is he's going quickly, moving from ep- episode to episode throughout his narrative. It's it's a little bit jarring, and Jesus says things that confront his disciples, and it's like, oh, it, it's constantly just causing us to take a step back and go, whoa, wait a second here. Let's, what what do you mean by this, Jesus? And he starts at the very beginning with that viewpoint in mind jarring his readers and this indeed would have been jarring to those who would not who are not used to hearing the word gospel like we are but this is not just generic good news right the gospel is not just oh it's just good news in a generic sense no it's in a particular sense this is the gospel of jesus christ the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ you know, I recall sitting in youth group one day and we had a, there was a student in there who, he did not have any kind of church background. He would, had very little exposure to the things of the Lord, to the Bible. And he asked a question. He says, okay, we keep talking about, what, well, what's Jesus' last name? And there was another student who says, oh, well, it's Christ, of course. Jesus Christ. First name Jesus, last name Christ. But we know that, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Now, Jesus' last name is not, Christ is not simply Jesus' last name, almost to function as a way to differentiate him from other individuals whose name is Jesus. No, his name is Jesus, and his title is Christ. He is the Christ. It is Jesus the Christ. The word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. It means anointed one. And Mark is saying that Jesus is the one who fulfills all the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah that are in the Old Testament. To call Jesus the Christ is to make a a crucial claim that Jesus is indeed worthy of worship. He's worthy of being proclaimed. He's worthy of being heralded. If calling the message about Jesus the good news was jarring to the Gentiles in Rome, calling Jesus the Messiah might be equally jarring to Jews who are looking forward to and anticipating their Messiah. Alright, Jesus isn't just another prophet, right? Right? He's not just another teacher. He's not just another rabbi. He's not just another good man. He's not a cult leader or a politician or a charlatan. He is the Messiah. The one who was to come. The one who brings life and light. The one who brings deliverance. He is Jesus, the Christ. And Mark is going to give special attention throughout the rest of this book. Every time he uses the word Christ, it's not just in a... Like it's his last name, no, this is the Messiah. Well, he is Jesus the Christ, but he is also the Son of God. The good, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in many ways, that last bit there might be the most jarring piece of information of all. Calling the message about Jesus the gospel again. That would have been startling to the Gentiles and the pagans steeped in their Roman cultures. Calling Jesus the Christ would have been startling to the Jews who had long awaiting their Messiah that would come and liberate them from their oppressors. But calling Jesus the Son of God. Now that's calling Him God Himself. That, is, that would have been startling to everyone. Jesus the Son of God, really? That would have been an audacious claim. I mean, never in the history of the world has God taken on human flesh. Never has anyone anyone claimed to be God and then actually demonstrated it to be true. There may have been others who claimed deity and said, oh yes, I'm God, I'm the incarnation of this, that, or the other thing. But all of them have come, they've died, and they've stayed dead. Right? They didn't rise from the dead. They didn't vindicate their claim. What Mark is going to show us is that this reality, that Jesus is the Son of God, that it is true, that Jesus is going to be vindicated in this claim, and that if that is true, it has enormous implications for our lives. Because if He is who He says He is, then He is Lord. And you owe Him your life. You owe Him your obedience. You owe Him your worship. And as we move through this book, we're going to be confronted with a picture of the Messiah that will challenge us. Here's a man who challenged those in his day when he was on earth. A man that was a living scandal to the Jews and Gentiles alike. And he remains a scandal to individuals today. There's a Christian, a Christian musician, his name is Michael Card. A lot of appreciation for his music. A lot of his music is, he, has depth to a lot of his lyrics. He wrote a song called The Scandalon, and I'm just going to read some of the lyrics from that song here. It goes like this. The seers and the prophets had foretold it long ago that the long awaited one would make men stumble. But they were looking for a king to conquer and to kill. Who'd ever thought he'd be so meek and humble? He will be the truth that will offend them one and all a stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Many will be broken so that he can make them whole and many will be crushed and lose their own soul along the path there lies a stubborn scandal on and all who come this way must be offended to some he is a barrier to other he's the way for all should know the scandal of believing and the last verse of his song goes like this it seems today the scandal on offends no one at all the image we present can be stepped over. Could it be that we are like the others long ago? Will we ever learn that all who come must stumble? Jesus challenged the perceptions of the Messiah in His day. Today, many preach Jesus, but do so in a way to try to minimize the offense of the gospel of Christ. They try to minimize His message, try to minimize what He calls His disciples to. And on this one point, this, on this point uh, there's one commentator who wrote this, As was the case during Jesus' ministry, so today many will not believe or will try to mold Christ into their own images by telling Him who He is to be and what He is to do. They want a glamorous, a gimmicky, a short-term solution to their own problems. Many try to de- domesticate the scandal. They try to turn the cross into jewelry or turn the Christ into a teacher of self-actualization. But the Gospel of Mark is the antidote to this distortion as it presents the foundation story of the Gospel about Jesus Christ who suffers and dies on a cross. As we study this book of Mark together, we're going to be confronted with Jesus Christ. Confronted with what He calls His disciples to be. Confronted with this this picture of an individual who would suffer and die in our stead. And then confronted with what our response to that should be. So often we try to take the Jesus of the Scriptures and try to fashion Him after our own image, we try to fit Him after our own politics, after our own ideas of, of how the world should work, try to fit Him into our ideas of what the church should look like. But are we willing to let Jesus define what those things ought to look like? Are we willing to submit ourselves to His authority, who is King over all? When was the last time you read one of the Gospels and Jesus made you uncomfortable? He made his readers uncomfortable. He made the people that he ministered to uncomfortable. On one hand, Jesus exemplifies tremendous compassion and love to those around him, and we really kind of like that picture, right? But on the other hand, we see this same Jesus. He's seen cursing fig trees, making whips, and driving everyone out of the temple marketplace. On one hand, He invites us to come to Him like little children. But on the other hand, He speaks in parables so that, and these are the words of Jesus, hearing they may hear but not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Jesus confronts us. He seeks to jar us, but then ultimately call us to follow Him. As Mark is writing, he does want to jar us. He wants us to wake up and see Jesus Christ for who He is. He does want us to be uncomfortable, but but it has a purpose for it. So that as we learn about who Jesus is and who we are in light of who Jesus is, as we come face to face with Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the one who defies expectations, the one who is foolishness to Gentiles and to Jews a stumbling block, to challenge us, how will we respond? Will we submit ourselves to His authority, or will we try to mold Him after our own image and tell Him how He is to behave? Well, as we move through this book, we're gonna we're gonna unfold and unpack this. We're gonna see Jesus Christ, and I. I'm looking forward to our study together as we get into the introduction of Jesus Christ and His ministry. But even now, we are challenged with this reality. Are we willing to submit ourselves before Him? This Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, who brings genuinely good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this gospel of Mark and that we can study it together. I thank you that uh, your word confronts us, but it meets us where we are and that, that we can all learn from Jesus Christ. We can learn from what your word says. I pray, Lord, that we would all submit ourselves to the authority of Christ, that we would trust fully and wholly in him and that we would find that it is truly a sweet thing to trust in Jesus Christ that we would not lean upon our own understandings, Lord, but trust in You and what Your Word says. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.